Today, from the global lane, social media and the U.S. Supreme Court, more limits on speech may lie ahead. When faced with the prospects of liability or hosting your content freely, they will go and cover themselves from liability. Beyond pocketbook issues, the top qualities American voters expect from the candidates this election season. Americans have a lot of values in common. The problem is those are not values that the elites have. Jewish free zones at UC Berkeley. Just a little anti-Semitism? It's utterly absurd, ridiculous, and inconsistent with American law. So is this speech ban anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, or just anti-Israel? Well, it's all of those. And January 6th prisoners say they'd rather be sent to Gitmo than left to languish without their rights in the DC jail. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. Some big changes may be coming soon to social media here in the United States and around the world. Twitter announced this week that the sale of the company to billionaire Elon Musk is back on. And the United States Supreme Court says it will rule on a U.S. law that protects big tech from lawsuits over third-party content posted on social media platforms. Well, here with more is Young Voices commentator James Chernosky. Mr. Chernosky is a senior tech and innovation policy analyst at Americans for Prosperity. James, it's good to have you with us again. So first, we all thought Elon Musk broke that deal with Twitter because he felt misled about the number of bots on the social media platform. So why is that deal back on now? That's a great question. Thanks for having me on. I think that this this whole ordeal with Elon Musk and the process of buying Twitter has been nothing short of turbulent, to say the least. So basically, you know, he wanted to buy the company. And then, as you mentioned, he felt misled about the bot numbers. But he did waive due diligence. And I think it was becoming increasingly apparent, looking at his legal options with this lawsuit he has in the Court of Chancery, that it might not go his way. So I think that ultimately, at the advice of his lawyers, it made sense for him to go and send that letter to Twitter to suggest that he is willing to go back and continue with the purchase of Twitter at that original price of $54.20 a share, uh, because that, that seemed to be the way that the transfer court was going to rule anyway. Um, so this is still, I think, a welcome development. I always thought that this was the best result for all parties concerned. And hopefully, fingers crossed, that this is the last time we have to talk about it and that this just happens and goes through now. Yes, I think he was facing a billion-dollar punishment or something for breaking that, that deal, so he may as well put that back into the uh, company once he gets it. So how long will it take to finalize the deal, and what changes do you expect from Musk at Twitter? Yeah, so I imagine that the deal is going to go and take a couple months to go and get sorted through the paperwork because this was contingent upon Twitter agreeing to drop its lawsuit, trying to force him to buy the company. So that has to get resolved first, and then they can go and move through the process. But we know that uh, Elon Musk would certainly like to see Twitter be a little bit more open in terms of the content that it is leaving up on its platform. So there is some hope there in that respect, and that we think that he wants to make Twitter ultimately an application for everything, whatever that means. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of opportunities on the horizon. It's just up to Elon Musk to figure out how he wants to take this company and lead it underneath his ownership. Well, something that may affect Twitter, I know it definitely will affect Google. The U.S. Supreme Court now says it will hear the arguments in the Gonzalez versus Google case. A decision is likely by early next summer. So explain Section 230 and what is at stake here? 
Yeah, so Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is a, basically it's a tort reform law. All it does is say that you as a website are not liable for content that is posted by third parties because you are not the speaker or owner of that content, right? It is just making sure that liability is being assigned where it needs to be assigned. Uh, you would not hold two people that got drunk and started a bar fight uh, you know, you wouldn't hold that bar liable for the fight that those two caused. You'd hold those individuals responsible. That's what Section 230 essentially does, except in a digital sphere, right? Um, and now this question that's being considered in front of the Supreme Court is whether or not with terrorist content that gets posted to YouTube, whether or not Google could be held partially liable for uh, that radical radicalization uh, that can come out of that kind of thing if it pops up in a recommendation feed, right? So um, this would mean that there would have to be a lot more manual review. So that could mean that content creators would experience delays in getting their videos up because Google would need to go and make sure that there's nothing there that could possibly violate, you know, uh, those kinds of issues. And this is really, I think, a challenging case because, you know, this is one of those situations where Google has to be right 100% of the time and terrorists only have to get it right once. Wouldn't they be led to have less freedom there because there'd be more censorship? They'd be they'd fear getting sued. Other social companies yeah. would now be liable for the content posted on uh, their platforms by others. So uh, more yeah. censorship, less freedom. What do you think? If this goes against Google, it does lead to it being harder for us to express ourselves online because when faced with the prospects of liability or hosting your content freely, they will go and cover themselves from liability. That's just an unfortunate reality of a business, right? So unfortunately, if Google is found to be held liable for uh, you know, this, this terrorist content that just realistically speaking slipped through the cracks, they take a lot of action against this kind of content already, right? And if they get found liable in some manner here by the Supreme Court, then you're absolutely right. It would result in more censorship. It, it would result in it being a lot more difficult for people to upload content onto YouTube and other platforms too. This is larger than just Google. This affects the internet writ large. Where do you think all this is heading then, James? Uh, what does the future of social media look like? I think we're in a, a bit of a transition period where a lot of the old traditional companies that we're used to, like Twitter and Facebook, um, are certainly in a, in a stage of decline. And I think that we'll see some more changes to short form content, more engagement around recommendation media, where it's doing those trends, uh, those trend dances or, or what have you. Um, so I think that there's definitely a stage of transition that's going on here and that it'll be interesting to see how social media continues to evolve over the near future. Young Voices commentator, James Chernowski. Thank you, James, for sharing those insights. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. The economy, inflation, and crime top the list of voter concerns for the upcoming U.S. midterm election. But what do American adults expect from the leaders they will elect next month? Well, here to provide some insights is Christian pollster George Barna, director of research for the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. Dr. Barna, it's always good to talk with you. So your American Values study found that Americans are tired of nasty politics and may favor candidates who are kind, understanding. Tell us what you believe are the most significant findings and why. Well, to me, what this tells us is that so much of the narrative that we are being fed about how Americans are hopelessly divided, we have nothing in common, and so we need to rely upon our elites our government leaders to guide us forward into something that makes sense is utter nonsense. What we're finding in our research is that Americans have a lot of values in common. The problem is those are not values that the elites have in common with the general public. 
And so this is a day and age where we've got to make a decision. The voting population has to figure out, do they really want to throw the rascals out, as the expression goes, and bring in people who represent us rather than trying to serve themselves, individuals who see government service as a privilege, something that they can do to move the country forward by serving the people and taking the biblical principle of, uh, of stewards, leadership as stewardship, into all the different halls of government. Well, as Christians, we try to be uh, positive about this, but it seems like we always have to choose the lesser of two evils, and nothing ever really change in, changes in that sense. So I'm assuming these feelings about nastiness, unresponsiveness, are not limited to just one party, are they? No, no, it goes across parties, it goes across ideologies. We find that liberals, moderates, and conservatives agree on most of the things that we studied. Now, granted, these aren't the issues, immigration, crime, economy, as, as you mentioned at the top of the segment here. But nevertheless, what we find is that we can come to viable solutions if we work from the common set of values that we possess. But the way to do it isn't by uh, destroying each other, you know, taking great uh, pride in criticizing other people, but it's by trying to find those things we have in common and what we can agree upon. There is enough consensus that we can really rebuild the country around that. What did the adults uh, that you questioned say about government? Uh, what would the ideal government look like to them? Well, they want it to be focused just on the things that really matter, not expanding and growing and requiring an ever-growing budget to sustain. What they want is a government that is really focused on protecting and expanding individual freedom. They want a government that respects and is uh, seeking to take care of our families while allowing us to retain the, the authority to make the key decisions about our families. And they want a government that's seeking, seeking stability, not seeking radical transformation of all of our systems and institutions, but one that recognizes that the ones that we've had may need some tweaking, but not to be completely overthrown and rebuilt. They want stability, predictability, and steadiness. And the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, of course, is a Christian research center, and you've pulled on the declines in a biblical worldview and church attendance over the years. Yet this values poll seems to reflect a strong commitment to uh, Judeo-Christian ethics. So your thoughts on that, is that a contradiction or not? No, I think one of the things that that brings to the table is the fact that that God has placed within all of us a desire to be the kind of people he made us to be, but we're not quite sure how to do it. And so a lot of the kind of teaching that we may be getting at churches and schools and other places, even in our families, hasn't really focused on how do we take biblical principles and make them real on a day-to-day -day basis. People are clamoring for that. They want to know, how can I be the best person that I could possibly be? but not by cultural standards, by biblical standards. Okay, we'll see if these views are played out next month in the election. Dr. George Barna, Director of Research for the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. Thank you, George. We appreciate you sharing your time and insights, as always. Thank you, Thank you so much. Are Jewish students being denied their civil rights at the University of California, Berkeley? 
The dean of Berkeley Law School, Erwin Chemerinsky, says a rash of media reports about Jewish free zones being established at that university are not true. Dean Chemerinsky says only a handful of student organizations, fewer than 10 out of 100, have adopted anti-Israel bylaws, which include a ban against pro-Israel speakers. The law school dean also says he strongly objects to the student actions, which are clearly unconstitutional. Freedom of speech, dissent and debate is alive and well at Berkeley. Well, here with us is the man whose op-ed exposed what is happening at Berkeley. Kenneth Marcus is the founder and chairman of the Brandeis Center for Human Rights and former assistant secretary for civil rights at the U.S. Department of Education. Ken, thank you for coming on the show. So what did you think of the dean's response? Less than 10 percent of Berkeley student organizations actually adopted those bylaws banning Jews from expressing pro-Israel views. Your thoughts? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. I appreciate your interest, and I appreciate your bringing this to your uh, audience's attention. Uh, Dean Chemerinsky is one of the country's most distinguished constitutional law experts, as well as being the dean of the law school. I thought his response was utterly outrageous. The notion that it should be, what, acceptable for only nine student organizations at a law school uh, to exclude Jews from opportunities just because there are others that say it's okay. Uh, what would he say if uh, the mayor said there are nine neighborhoods where black, Hispanic, or Chinese people can't live, but don't worry because there are many others where they can live? What if there had been any other context in which any other group was shut out of opportunities? Uh, would a law school dean in the 21st century say not to worry it's okay to have nine segregated areas, just so long as we have many other areas that aren't segregated. I think he should be embarrassed uh, about having made this argument. It's utterly absurd, ridiculous, and inconsistent with American law. So is this speech ban anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, or just anti-Israel? Well, it's all of those. Uh, 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 pick your poison. Uh, to begin with, it is a method of silencing one side of a political debate. It is a way of saying... Uh, we should not permit anyone to participate in a discussion on campus if they are pro-Israel. Uh, this is anti-discourse. It's anti-speech. It's anti-education. Um, it prevents even someone who is critical of Israel from having an informed um, education on, on the topic. But it's also anti-Jewish uh, because the overwhelming majority of American Jews support Israel, uh, and consider support for Israel to be an important part of their identity as Jewish Americans. So when these groups say no Zionists, they are almost effectively saying no Jews. Dean Chemerinsky, to his credit, concedes that this would block him from speaking to these groups, and he says that it would also potentially block 90% or so of his law students from speaking to these groups. In addition, it would no doubt prevent some of the faculty as well. So it is a considerable assault on free speech, but it's beyond that. It's also discriminatory and an assault on the Jewish community. 
And you're a graduate of Berkeley Law School. In addition to serving as Assistant Secretary of Civil Rights at the Department of Education, you served as Staff Director at the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. I'd say, you know, Berkeley Law and Civil Rights well. So is this a civil rights violation? Would there be a case here against Berkeley, your alma mater? Well, you know, I am a litigator and a civil rights lawyer, and the Louis D. Brandeis Center for Human Rights under law does file lawsuits in cases such as this. I don't want to say right now what we're going to do, but it is hard to look at this circumstance and to argue that the University of California is complying with federal law. They are a public institution. They are bound by the Constitution, including the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, as well as the various uh, civil rights statutes protecting uh, students protecting uh, lecturers and protecting others. And what can you tell us about other university campuses? Are we seeing similar bylaws, similar bans on pro-Israel speech? Well, Berkeley is unfortunately exceptional in some respects, but representative in others. What starts in California often spreads, which means that if we don't fight back and fight back hard, we're going to see it in other places. But we have seen um, some roughly similar situations uh, on other campuses, including both undergraduate and law school campuses, in which Jewish students are being marginalized and excluded for their Jewish identity and specifically for the Zionist aspect of their Jewish identity. What we've been seeing on many campuses is efforts to uh, impeach uh, Jewish pro-Israel members of student government or student judiciaries. We're also seeing efforts to block uh, Jewish student organizations from participating in more general student activities, especially uh, with progressive student organizations. Uh, and we're seeing a general effort to marginalize and exclude uh, the Jewish community to create the notion that Jews uh, and the Jewish uh, community and establishment uh, are simply not a normal part of life on college and university campuses. What's happening at Berkeley Law now is in some respects unique, but in some respects it is simply the latest uh, in what is clearly a nationwide trend and an ugly one. And what can our viewers do about it? Well, everyone can respond in a different way. Certainly, uh, if anybody is connected with the University in, of California in any way, they should make their voices heard directly to the University of, of California. Those who live in the state of California should communicate with legislators uh, as, as well as trustees at the University of California. Uh, but in general, it is useful to have people raising their voices in whatever ways they can, whether it's uh, by um, uh, by writing uh, articles or op-eds or simply comments on uh, website postings uh, or providing support for the various groups that uh, support uh, Jewish students and academics. Okay, Kenneth Marcus, founder and chairman of the Louis Brandeis Center. Thank you for sharing your time and insights. We appreciate it. My pleasure, and thank you. Send us to Guantanamo. 34 Americans detained for alleged crimes committed at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, say they'd rather be sent to the Cuban prison where terrorists are housed than rot without hope in the Washington, D.C. jail. Some have been held for more than a year and a half on misdemeanor charges. They've yet to go to trial. They detail their mistreatment in a handwritten letter sent to Attorney General Merrick Garland this week. 
They write of being forced to beg for water and medical aid. They tell of enduring mold, cockroaches, and mice in their jail cells. The 34 men also complain of malnourishment. They say they've been denied visitors, access to attorneys, and religious services. They allege they've been harassed, assaulted, and beaten by guards. The grievances exposed in the letter are similar to those detailed by Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene after she visited the jail 10 months ago. They've been beaten by the guards many, many times. We were told that they're called white supremacist and they're called racist and all kinds of horrible names. Um, they also told us that they're denied medical treatment. These are not unruly or dangerous, violent criminals. These are dads, brothers, veterans, teachers. All political prisoners who continue to be persecuted endure the pain. Folks, we're not excusing any of these prisoners if they assaulted police officers, destroyed federal property, or committed other criminal acts. But regardless of what they did, they must be treated humanely and constitutionally. Last October, U.S. District Judge Royce Lambert found the D.C. jail warden and the director of the D.C. Department of Corrections in contempt of court. And he ordered the Department of Justice to investigate whether the civil rights of the January 6th inmates had been violated. Well, one year has now passed and little has changed. The January 6th inmates are enduring this mistreatment because the fox is guarding the hen house. The Department of Justice is the responsible party because it's keeping these men in the district jail without giving them a speedy trial, which is a requirement of the U.S. Constitution. The Sixth Amendment states that, quote, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. Well, Attorney General Merrick Garland and other DOJ officials need to be held accountable for this unconscionable miscarriage of justice. The 34 inmates who signed this letter are probably right. They'd likely receive better treatment at Gitmo. And maybe, just maybe, like some of the previous terrorists held there, they could be freed in a trade with the Taliban. I could see the headlines now. January 6th terrorist exchange for millions of dollars worth of U.S. military equipment left in Afghanistan. Well, in all seriousness, folks, let's not forget the words of the author of the book of Hebrews, who reminded us in chapter 13, verse 3, to, quote, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are badly treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. If prosecutors in some of America's biggest cities can free hardened repeat offenders from jail, and they can go out and commit more crimes, why can't some of these prisoners be freed on bail or given speedy trials? Is our democracy truly at risk from these 34 men? Is it that fragile? Denying Americans their constitutional rights, treating detainees inhumanely, and ignoring the rule of law because of a citizen's political views is the greater threat to the future of American democracy. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.